Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, October 11th by lead pastor Rod Heppel. It's the third message in our fall 2020 sermon series entitled God of Wonder. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Okay, so we are already into our third week in our God of Wonder sermon series. Now last week we looked at evidences for the existence of God from what's called general revelation. Now, general revelation is that which we can see about how God has revealed himself to us through creation and human life. There's evidences of that, that God's fingerprints are all over this world. And, you know, everyone can explore that. Every person can look at those evidences and wonder, who's behind it all? And that's what last week's message was all about. Who made this universe? And if the universe had a beginning, we said, then there had to be someone who started it. We had three points. And the second one was that if there's design in the universe, well, then there must be a designer. And then the third one is that if humanity has a moral conscience, this this moral law or code, then there must be a moral law giver. So that's what we looked at last week. But remember I said that that kind of general evidence for the existence of God only gets you so far in really knowing who God is. General revelation gets you to the doors, but not into the building. So... For that, we need special revelation. God had to show us more specifically who he is outside of general revelation in order for us to truly know who he is, what his desire is, because if we couldn't have that, then we wouldn't really know how to fully worship him. Now, there are two ways in which God has done this, and we're going to look at those two main areas today. One is through the scriptures, the Bible. That's the written history of God's interaction with Israel and all of humanity. And then the second way is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, right? He has come into the world to show us who God is and what he is like. And that's special revelation. The Word of God and the Son of God. God revealing himself to us through a written form and through a human form. Now, a person may conclude from general revelation out there that there is some kind of God or greater being um, that is here but they still would not know what God is like, not necessarily believing that he is even the God of the Bible. So you may wonder to yourself, well, what might a person conclude about this God or higher being if not the God of the Bible? Like, what are some of the ways, the different ideas or views or worldviews that people have had about this God? So I want to talk just a little bit about that. Now, you might remember that last week we looked at atheists or atheism, people who believe that there is no God. And uh, kind of closely related to that are agnostics or agnosticism, where people say, well, I can't know there's a God, but nor can you know. That's to be an agnostic. No one really can know for sure that there is a God. But here are some of the traditional worldviews of people who believe that there is a God, but not the God of the Bible. So one, pantheism. Uh, pantheism, in simple terms, are people who believe in God and that God is nature and that everything in nature is God and God is nature. So God is in a tree and God is in an animal and all of nature makes up who God is and that one day we too could become God. That's pantheism. Similarly, panentheism is related to that view because they believe that God is found in nature. So it's in this experience with nature that you come to believe who God is. So both of these views flow out of a more ancient belief system called Animism. Now, animism is where people believe that there was a particular spirit or soul that was attached to a tree or to aspects of nature. Things like that, right? 
uh, so a fish or the mountain or whatever. Each of those elements had a spirit or soul attached to it. Now, Greek mythology is related to that kind of idea of animism. Uh, it's about humans having to please or appease gods uh, who control the elements of the natural world, um, the, this world that you know, it influences our life. Things like fertility or rain or sun, uh, wealth, wars. You just have to figure out what each particular god wants and make him or her happy, and then you'll find favor in your life. Well, a popular example from Greek mythology of this is the story of Troy, which is King Agamemnon, who set sail for the city of Troy, but couldn't even get out of the port because there was a lack of wind. Then through a prophet, it became known that Agamemnon had offended the goddess Artemis by killing one of her special or sacred animals and then kind of claiming that he was a better hunter than her. And she was known as the goddess of the moon and the goddess of hunting. So what was the answer to this dilemma for the king? He had to sacrifice his daughter in order to appease the goddess Artemis, Artemis, who had interfered with the wind. And upon the sacrificing of his daughter, the wind picked back up and his fleet could sail for Troy. So that's kind of the idea behind animism. Now, as you read through the Bible, you're going to see that that's a pretty uh, familiar view of the people that surrounded Israel, that permeated the history of the world, that they believed in these gods that had a specific power over an element in the world, and somehow you had to appease that God or please that God in order for things to go well for you. The Bible distinguishes God as the true and living God, and that he is not like these common practices of worship that were really idolatry. Now, the final perspective worldview that I want to bring to your attention today is deism. Deism believes that God made the universe and then he left. So he wound it up like a clock and now the world is just ticking down. But he doesn't intervene with his creation uh, in any way. So it's kind of this sense that God um, has gone on vacation, right? And he's not taking calls. So don't bother calling. He's not interacting. So those are the kind of three common worldviews with lots of variations on them. Very common in North America and Canada today are ideas around pantheism or panentheism because people are really in touch with experiencing God in nature. One of the shows that our family enjoyed watching not that long ago during COVID uh, was a show called Alone, where 10 participants went to the Arctic to try to survive for 100 days. Could you imagine surviving 100 days in the Arctic? That's no joke. That was one of their quotes that they always played in their show. Uh, to be honest, it was absolutely insane. They had very little that they could take in with them, and they had to get their own food, put up their own shelter before winter came. If it was me, I'd last maybe three days, and I'd be tapping out. But every time one of the contestants caught a rabbit or a fish to eat, they would praise nature for this provision and justify their killing by honoring the life that was given in order for them to live, kind of like the circle of life idea. Now, respecting nature is great. And to be amazed by it is proper, but to treat it like God is wrong. The difference between the God of the Bible and most other views about God is that he is the creator and is the only one to be worshipped. You don't mix worship of creation with the creator, ever. Creation leads you to give thanks to God the creator, and then you worship him. So Romans 1, Paul says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. And then in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, I know that in today's world, most people don't worship nature by making an idol. 
Some do, but most do not. Nonetheless, they make the error of attributing to creation what should only be attributed to God. So this is a big takeaway right here to understand that the God of the Bible is the creator of all things and he exists out of his creation even though he has the freedom to enter into it. So there is a line of demarcation that separates God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as creator from the rest of all of creation. God is not a part of his creation, although he can choose to enter it. God is defined by, God is not defined by his creation. He is complete within himself. He is 100% perfect in his nature. He needs nothing. Nehemiah 9 says, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Now, there is a relationship between God and his creation. I remember hearing once a story from a missionary who lived in New Guinea, and he worked amongst a primitive tribal group of people. He found it amazing that people knew who owned what. If he asked whose canoe that was, everyone knew. There was no name that distinguished one canoe from the other, and it wasn't locked up as if to keep it from being stolen from someone. And when he asked, how do you know that canoe belongs to so-and-so, they'd say, because he made it. So the one who made it owned it. If you stole it, well, you run the risk of the consequences that the owner would bring on you. They had a pretty acute sense of justice, and they knew how to do, take care of it. Now, we understand this creator-owner relationship. You made it, it's yours. Well, so it is with God. God created it. God owns it. If anyone is going to get acknowledged for it, it's God. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. You know, another statement in the Bible about God being there before creation is Genesis 1.1 where it says, in the beginning, God. Now, just stop right there for a moment and just, just think about that. In the beginning, God. There is nothing else. Nothing else at this point existed. There's no material matter for him to work with. There's no universe, no planets or stars. There's no earth or sea or creatures. There's no humans, nothing, just God. God is eternal. God is self-existent. God is limitless. He lives as a triune being for all eternity past and all eternity future. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can gain clarity on God's otherness, his greatness, his so far beyond everythingness, we call this his transcendence. It's a big word, but it's just that God is beyond. He's greater. He doesn't need us. Then and only then can we begin to understand the amazingness of him coming to earth in human flesh. All of a sudden, that blows our mind. In one of my theology books, it says, when scripture is rightly interpreted, it is ultimately about Jesus as God, our Savior. He is the object of our faith. He forgives us of our sins, and he gives us eternal life. The big aha of the Bible is that Jesus is God. God to man and man to God, as Archie Spencer likes to say, and that God has come into this world to rescue us. John 1.1 says about Jesus... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Everything through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made 
that has been made. Does that not sound like Genesis 1-1? That God in the beginning who created the universe is Jesus. Let me connect a few more dots here. Way back in the history of Israel, when God was about to show who he was to the nation of Israel, uh, that's when they were in captivity in Egypt, and he was going to send his plagues and call them out. He comes to Moses while Moses is out in the desert, and he's tending his flock. Um, and here's how it kind of is described for us in Exodus 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is Mount Sinai. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and I will see this strange sight, why, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then God goes on to tell Moses that, you know, that he's seen the suffering of his people, Israel, and that he's going to send Moses back into Egypt to stand before Pharaoh, to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go so that they can come and worship him. Now, you can imagine that Moses just wasn't too excited about this plan. He really balks at God's plan. And he says, well, I can't speak. He says, well, they won't believe me. And he says, what am I going to tell them who sent me? So back in Exodus 3, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Well, you know, it's kind of a weird sounding name, right? Uh, my name is I am. That doesn't really sound like a name. It sounds more like a description, which it is. But this is the way in which God chose to reveal himself to Moses and really to Israel and to all of us. He is the I am or the I will be what I will be. He is the self-existent God. And there's a whole lot more wrapped up in that, but it's not my point today. Here's the point that I want to make. Uh, we're going to see that in the New Testament, Jesus uses that name, the I am, and he calls it for himself. Now, that's a pretty big, bold claim. So John 8, he's embroiled in this argument with the religious leaders where he's making claims and they don't like his teachings and they don't like his miracles and they don't like what he says. I mean, he's saying things like, I'm the light of the world. And I stand with my father who sent me. And you are below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am of a different world. And amidst all of the host of teachings and statements, he drops a bombshell. Verse 51 of John 8. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, we know that you are demon possessed. Now we know. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replies, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. So there it is. 
the I am statement that Jesus makes about himself. He claims for himself the personal name of God, Yahweh, the name that God had said would be his forever and ever, that they would call him from generation to generation. So, how did the Jewish leaders respond to Jesus' bombshell of this claim? Verse 59, at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. They wanted to kill him for blasphemy. Which, you know, they would have been right, except for the fact that he wasn't just a great teacher or a prophet. He was more than that. He's the Son of God, equal in his nature to the Father. Jesus is the great I Am. And for that reason, it's not blasphemy. Philippians 2 says, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now one more story about Jesus. In Matthew 17, it's recorded for us that he took his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers. And he took them with him on a hike. They went up on a mountain. Now we don't know which one, although there's some discussion around that. But there on that mountain, they have a mountaintop experience with Jesus. So here's how it's put in Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. They saw no one except Jesus, because Jesus is the one and only unique Son of God. He is not just one of many prophets. He is not like Elijah and Moses. He is more than that. He is categorically removed from them. He is the very God of the universe who is above all and over all, yet has chosen to come into history to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves, which was to rescue us from our sin. That's the amazing truth of Christianity. You might wonder why we reference C.S. Lewis so much around Sardis Fellowship, but it's because he was able to grasp the heart of the Christian faith and put it in such an understandable way. He has this ability to cut through to the point uh, and just make it. So I'm going to violate a principle of good public speaking here today and read for you a very long quote from Lewis on this thing called Christianity. It's from his book, Mere Christianity, and it's found in book four, chapter one. So here's the quote. <clears throat> Is not the popular idea of Christianity simply this, that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher and that if only we took his advice, we might be able to establish a better social order. It is quite true that if we took Christ's advice, we should soon be living in a happier world. You need not even go so far as Christ. If we did all that Plato or Aristotle or Confucius told us, we should get on a great deal better than we do. And so what? 
We never have followed the advice of the great teachers. Why are we likely to begin now? Why are we more likely to follow Christ than any of the others? Because he is the best moral teacher. But that makes it even less likely that we shall follow him. If Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is, is of no importance. There has been no lack of good advice of the last 4,000 years. A bit more makes no difference. But as soon as you look at any real Christian writings, you find that they are talking about something quite different from this popular religion. They say that Christ is the Son of God. They say that those who give him their confidence can also become sons of God. They say that his death saved us from our sins. Christianity claims to be telling us about another world, about something behind the world we can touch and see and hear. And then towards the end of the chapter, he concludes with this. But what man in his natural condition has not got is spiritual life. The higher different sort of life that exists in God. A man who changed from having natural life to having spiritual life would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And that is precisely what Christianity is about. The world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues and there is a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. Well, that's it. That's what it's all about. Special revelation reveals this truth to us that the eternal God who created all has come into his creation to bring us eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel. It is only by the free will of God's love and pleasure that he both created us and then he comes in the person of Jesus to rescue us that we might be brought back into right relationship with him. That's Christianity. That's the God that we worship. That's special revelation. That's why we have it. You know, a few years ago, I took a class at Acts Seminary on the Quran. Uh, and in preparation for the class, I had to read through the Quran. And then in the class, we would take it chapter by chapter, most of the chapters, breaking it down to try to understand what the teaching is. The Quran is about the size of the New Testament. And if you're not familiar with it, uh, it's a series of recitations in Arabic that the Prophet Muhammad claimed to have uh, received from Allah, God, through the angel Gabriel, which then he recited to the people. Now, this is the foundation of the Islamic faith, the Quran, and what happened with the Prophet there. Now, as a class, we moved through, and when we got towards kind of the, the last half of the Quran, we began to see what the Islamic faith believed about Jesus. They believed that he was a prophet of Allah, and that they respected and actually even revered him. When it came to understanding how it was possible that Allah could allow his prophet to go to the cross and die, the story changes dramatically from the biblical account of what took place. So in a moment of great deception, Allah places Judas on the cross so as to not bring shame to himself for not protecting the prophet, Jesus. I remember thinking to myself how profoundly different that understanding of God's work of redemption is from that of the Bible. So if we compare to what Islam believes about God and protecting himself from that kind of shame to what the Bible, it's drastically different. You know, for many people in our world today, they like to think that religions are basically all the same. They say the same thing. They're trying to do the same thing. Their values, core values, outcomes are really the same. 
They teach people to be good and to love your neighbor and to try to find God through the angle in which you think that that happens. But this is not true. Each religion makes a truth claim about God that needs to be weighed. They're different from each other. You can't just take a truth claim, empty it of its truth claim, and say that it just says the same thing. That's not true at all. You need to look at the messages of those claims, and you need to weigh out which one is true. The message of the Bible is that God not only allowed Jesus to go to the cross, it was his plan from eternity past that the eternal Son of God would pay the price of the sin of all of humanity that, humanity, that we might be made right with God. The God of the Bible took shame upon himself, the shame of this world, my shame and your shame. And then he conquered sin and he conquered death and he rose again and he's victorious over it. He's glorified and now he leads captives like me and you into freedom and into eternal life. That's the God of the Bible. That's the message of truth that needs to be weighed. And you know, I ask myself, if Jesus did that for me, why do I find it so hard to take the shame of others on myself? Why can't I endure a little bit of injustice from another person? Why can't I model for them the same grace that God has so clearly shown to me? The God that took shame on himself? Can't I display that to others? I'm ashamed of my worst moments of impatience and rudeness. All for the sake of my pride and self-preservation, when the king of all creation came into the world and went to the cross for me. Hebrews 12 says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. May we, those who call ourselves the people of God, be inspired today to follow God's example and to do the same thing in how we treat other people. I pray that today your heart will be moved by the fact that this God who is above and beyond and has created everything has come into this world through Christ and has not only modeled for us what we should do, but has paid the very price of my sin and your sin that we might be made right with him. I'd like to lead us in prayer. Father, I'd like to pray for every person watching this today and I would ask that you would bless them through your word the special revelation that has been written for us to know who you are, to know how you work and operate, to know the desire of your heart to be in relationship with us, to know that that plan included your son coming into this world so that that might happen. Lord, I pray that this message would just touch our hearts. For the one who has not come to faith in you, that they would trust in you, that they would know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sin. And for those of us who know this message, that we would live it out faithfully. Help us to take on the shame of others, recognizing that that's what you did for us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.